Hey, you're still here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Chad Killian from the University of New Hampshire. Uh, he recently published a short piece titled Beyond Wires and Lights in a Box, Online Physical Education is Necessary to Enhance Program Impact. Um, so we're here to uh, unpack that. I saw that you posted this on Twitter and uh, you asked for some like extension or feedback and I was like, that, there's a lot to unpack. So I figured we could do it uh, in this way. And in your article, you stated as one of the purposes of the article was to stimulate conversation. So Chad, we are here to stimulate conversation. Welcome back to the podcast. Yes, thanks. So any questions I ask on Twitter are usually rhetorical because I don't have very many followers, but I appreciate the reply. And you are right. There's a lot to unpack. It is kind of a big topic to tackle within a short sort of 1500 word viewpoint, but yeah, let's, let's try to do that a little bit here and hopefully people can, can run with the conversation in their own circles as well. So I guess the first question, and I didn't know that this was, uh, came from Bushner, but can you explain what the title of this paper comes from? Cause I looked at it and I was like, beyond wires and lights in a box, what does that have to do with online PE? So what's the, what's the article title? Where did you get that from? Yeah, it's a little, uh, a little nugget to all the on um, the few online physical education super nerds, um, but it harkens back to Craig Bushner uh, out of uh, Cal State Chico, I believe. Uh, he's sort of the the person that I've observed to sort of started this conversation with this editorial. I mean, there wasn't much uh, written about online physical education that I've I've come across before his editorial and. Um, yeah, 2006, Joe Bird, he, he wrote the article, Online Physical Education, Wires and Lights in a Box. And he used, um, I guess what do you call it, like a metaphor or something uh, from a movie called Good Night and Good Luck. But uh, um, an academic named Morrow stated something about television back in the 60s that, that said, uh, you know, this instrument so that television can teach, it can illuminate. Yes, it can even inspire, but can only do so to the extent that humans are determined to use it to those ends. Otherwise, it's merely lights and wires in a box. Mm. Um, so he was sort of making a reference of online PE to, to the emergence of television in the 50s. Um, and so I thought, you know, almost 20 years later, it'd be good to kind of return to that and, and maybe reignite the conversation because I think we've moved a little bit beyond, um, you know, that, that comparison there something maybe a bit more valuable than it was back in 2006 yeah absolutely and and it was a lot different in 2006 like the ability for you to uh, watch a video on your cell phone in 2006 very different than it is now like looking at a video or using QR code to access information or just the em embrace of technology really is completely different than it was you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when when that first kind of jumped on the scene. So you're you're an advocate of online PE. Uh, I'll go to the very very end of your paper. You say quality secondary PE programs that promote lasting positive impact may never exist without an online PE component. So that's a hard sentence to start unpacking this and arguably like i don't know i i i would agree with you like 
I think there can be good programs in certain places without having any online PE, but I think that there's so many people who just absolutely hate being in PE and what are we doing? What are we doing for them? Nothing. Like whatever you do, build relationships over your two 90 minute blocks to try to get the student to start dressing out. I don't know, like, are you ever going to reach that person through that, those means because they just don't want to undress or be physically active in front of other people. So I'm, I'm wondering, if, like, why do you think that online P is such a game changer that you believe that non-adopters are, in the long run, almost like, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but almost doing a disservice to students by not adopting aspects of online PE? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot in the question too. So I want to, I would like to qualify my advocacy of online PE within a bigger advocacy effort of quality PE. All of sort of pushing and prodding and, and, and discussing online PE is only to the extent that can support quality physical education in general for students. And so I think, and this is sort of a, brief glimpse inside my mind palace so people who are familiar with Sherlock know like that that relation there's a lot there's a lot here but my advocacy of online PE is is actually advocacy for quality physical education opportunities and the reason why I've chosen online PE as sort of my touch point is because we need a different approach I'm a policy pessimist because I come from the U.S. Everything stems from opportunities to learn, and we have not seen any improvement in opportunities in my lifespan. I've seen decreases in opportunities. And so online PE for me is just one of perhaps many creative um, avenues towards improving opportunities for students. Um, so when I, you know, when you say, when I say I'm an advocate of online PE, it's like, yeah, sort of. I'm an advocate of quality physical education, which relies on adequate opportunities. And from my observation, my thinking, research that I've conducted, the writing that I've done, the stuff that I'm putting out, you know, in the future, I've seen it improve opportunities. There's a lot to that, which I'm sure we'll unpack here. But, you know, generally speaking, I think, you know, that's why I said in the article, it's long past due, we take a different parallel approach to program enhancement. Otherwise, we become accessories to our own continued mar marginalization. I get a little frustrated with people that, I mean, we have a whole research line in our field of how physical educators feel marginalized, how they are marginalized. And we've experienced that when, you know, when we were teaching. Can't complain about being marginalized and then restrict, you know, ways that you can sort of undo that yourself. And so when I think about online physical education, I see it mostly as a teacher driven possibility to improve opportunities. And so if we want to stop being marginalized, if we want to actually help our kids learn, I think we need to seriously consider at the secondary level, the high school level, adding an online physical education option, because there are trickle-down effects that would affect your face-to-face -face classes. So what are, I used what the are, example in the article. 
what are some of those uh, kind of trickle down effects? Like you, you talked about the class size being reduced. Can you kind of explain that? Yeah. So raise your hand if you've ever gotten your principal to reduce the number of students in your PE class. <laughs> you know, all the literally every teacher I've talked to is like, I keep, you know, I, I started with 35 when I got here, you know, 10 years ago. Now I have 50 students. Some of my classes have 80 students. And then I'm sharing the gym with another class that has 80 students. So we've got, you know, three basketball courts with 180 students. You know, you might have a curtain there, but that doesn't help. It actually hurts because you still hear what's going on. So how can we get what we want without relying on policymakers and principals is a question that I ask. And again, I see online PE as one of those ways. So with the class size situation, how can I reduce my class size without limiting, you know, physical education to a, you know, certain population of students? Well, if you have 50 students in your PE class and you have also have an online physical education elective that 30% of your student body enrolls in, then, you know, simple cut and dry, that reduces your 50 person class to 35 students. And then where, because the other 15 students in each of those classes then enroll in your online course. And so that begins to approach more equitable class distribution compared to math, science, reading, et cetera. So simply in my mind, you know, a clean example is if you have an online PE elective and a certain portion of your face-to-face students enroll in that, then they are no longer in your face-to-face classes, which is a reduction in class size without asking a principal to do that officially or whatever. Yeah. So does that make sense? Yeah. I'll be the devil's advocate here and I'll push back a little bit because, you know, this is a conversation. (laughs) This is, this is the sparring that we go through. Uh, so uh, this would then create more work for the teacher unless they could get paid to teach a group of students online because they would uh, do a lesson plan online and then they'd have some sort of, or they'd have a lesson plan for in-person then they'd have some structured asynchronous or synchronous or however they formulate the online PE. But it would, ha- it would, reco- it would require a new hire to cover that online PE or it would have that teacher make a ninth grade section or a 10th grade section of online PE and they'd have to do that extra work, right? Yeah, yeah, so I mean, maybe we need to step back here and sort of define what online PE is, uh, you know, in this conversation. So the way I'm viewing online PE is, is sort of like a, a teacher-driven asynchronous course. So if I was working at a high school, I would design this course. Um, there are, of course, other ways online physical education is implemented, you can get an asynchronous for profit company to do it where students sort of um, uh, participate. Um, And I think I said synchronous, I'm talking about an asynchronous course designed by the teacher at the school. Mm -hmm. Um, So in theory, you would, you know, the, the teacher should get credit for that. So if I, you know, if my contract requires me to teach six out of nine classes a day, and I teach three face-to-face classes and three online sections, then only three of my classes during the day should be face-to-face and the other three should be sort of plan time, grade time, providing feedback to students, maybe even inviting students in for office hours so you can have some face-to-face one-on-one counseling, goal check-ins, you know, however you coordinate your class. I think you point a good problem out is 
schools give teachers an online section as an overload and they still teach their six face-to-face classes. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is a problem. And that's, that's the complexity of sort of the policy issue. You know, on the one hand, it's creating, it's a policy issue because it creates, online physical education creates opportunities for students. But from a teacher perspective, it's a policy issue of how classes are, are, you know, the credit is counted or how they're, they're, distributed to teachers um how but along those lines along those lines i think it, it at that point it becomes a it could become a recruitment and retention uh uh and it could have an impact on recruitment and retention of teachers for example uh how nice would it be to say hey you're going to teach half your load face to face and half your load online and once your three morning physical education classes are done, you can teach your online from home. That'd be kind of nice for me, at least. I would love to like get in the gym. I love the gym, being in the gym, but you know, I like my afternoons to give feedback online or meet virtually with students from my couch or from my home office. Maybe use a day to, you know, have a, take my child to a doctor's appointment and that's okay. Like, mm-hmm. but, but then, the rigidness of union contracts will prevent that from happening. So it's, uh, defeatist right there. No, no, there, there's definitely like a bunch of layers there. Uh, and I'm wondering uh, in your experience, whether that's at your current university or in your, in your doc program, when you think about the undergraduate programs that are making, producing licensed PE teachers, what percentage or is there a specific class that's set to teach teachers how to teach online PE? Is there a tech class? Is there, do you cover that at all in, in those institutions that you've been a part of? No, I mean, I wasn't at one of my institutions long enough to really implement that. I'm, you know, I'm sort of new here. I know uh, Tyler Goad does some really good stuff at Emporia State uh, with his program teaching sort of how to teach well and online. I know maybe a few other schools, but I, I just don't see this being a part of undergrad curriculums, uh, which has issues when, when you know, teachers are expected or, or desiring to do this because you want to be able to do it well. But I got an email uh, not too long ago from a graduate um, that works at a fully virtual PE or fully virtual school as a PE teacher. I'm like, well, you didn't get any instruction from us. Mm-hmm. How's that going? Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of issues with it yeah. for sure. We have a, we have a class here at Mason that we, it was a two unit class. It was a tech and PE class. Now we've added it to a three unit class because there's just so much content that they're teaching. We have a fantastic uh, adjunct who's teaching in the schools who got uh, her undergrad PE degree in license, but then um, a master's degree in basically educational tech, like like working in uh, tech and facilitating. So she she teaches that, and um, she has now started teaching more towards that. Like this is what online PE is, and this is how you build like learning management systems, and this is how like people learn and and in addition to like, hey, here's a heart rate monitor. Like this is how you can use a heart rate monitor in a physical class. And um, this is how like 
PowerPoint can be infused into teaching um, teaching in-person classes. So like we've we've changed a little bit more towards that because like you said, you know, if, if you just got out of school, got some student debt, or you're trying to save up, somebody comes up to you and says, would you like to teach this extra class in online PE? It's at the same time, or the dozens and dozens of online PE classes over summer that are being taught. And you could, you could teach that summer class for five, six, seven weeks and still have a decent um, summer vacation and make, make extra money. So I think that a lot of especially young up and coming like out of uh, undergrad teachers are taking up those opportunities to teach, but are we teaching them? Are we teaching them how to, how to actually do it? Yeah, and I think that the teaching piece serves twofold effect. Obviously, you want them to be able to do it effectively, but when they get involved in some of these for-profit, like, credentialing, you know, summer credentialing courses that I know exist out there that employ certified teachers, basically they're just grading. And so the education then becomes being able to be critical of that and, you know, push back against just this low-quality, you know, easy credential factory that that a lot of these virtual schools are yeah um so it has sort of a critical um value as well sort of knowing what it is and how to do it well yeah because i know the local school district here i've i've talked to one of the main high schools that's super close to mason and uh they have so many different types of like types of classes period like where i used to think when I went to high school, it was like ninth grade PE and 10th grade PE. And then you could have weightlifting as a junior or senior. Now they have like, you know, yoga, they have ninth grade PE, 10th grade PE, then they have the health component. Um, in Virginia, uh, high school teachers teach driver's ed. So there's a long story we can explain about that, but they have strength training, then they have like uh, lifetime physical activities, then they have um, online PE during the semester for those students who like let's say they have some sort of injury or something that they cannot participate then they have that small section concurrently with that um, with those classes then they have a huge summer academy and obviously like if you only take PE for five six weeks over summer like it's a totally different experience than what you're gonna get if you have to take the whole year with that said, there are certain students that won't do won't do much over the entire year. They'll just kind of like go through the motions just to have to be there. So I, I think it's tough because it is a different experience. Like it's a very different experience in online PE than PE. But for some people, you can learn a lot more. You can get so much deeper in the content. Yeah, it gives, I mean, depending on how it's deployed, it gives teachers space to teach stuff that they feel squeezed. Like, I think we've mentioned this before, like, if you're seeing your students 45 straight days, and that's it, you're not gonna, you're not gonna hear anything from me if you prioritize fiscal activity in those circumstances. Like, you want to get the kids active, you want to provide, you know, skill development opportunities, fitness development opportunities, you know, development opportunities for appropriate reflection with the amount of time that you have, but maybe use the online piece for some of more knowledge-based or strategic teaching. Maybe use the online piece to facilitate reflections. 
to identify personal relevance and meaningfulness and, and the value of social connection, those types of things. So um, I think one of the things that I see sort of the next phase of my career is really helping people or pushing the envelope on how we conceptualize online PE because I think it's fairly narrow right now. And I think it's mostly, yeah, I think we could expand sort of how we can even conceive of, of using these technologies to promote learning and physical learning, yeah. psychomotor learning. Yeah. So do you argue for the use of online PE as an elective or just as a substitute for in, in secondary schools? So like, should it be an elective? Like you could take this if you fulfilled your minimum requirements or is this something that you would say like, okay, it's either or you can take it in person or you could take it online. Yeah, I think it should be at least an elective where students can opt into it. I mean, I think from the students that we've talked to and the research that I've done, um, they've, they found a lot of value in it. I mean, I, uh, we have quotes of, of students that expressed distaste for face-to-face -face and didn't see a lot of productive value in the time that they spent. And yet they're having competitions with each other with their heart rate monitor on at their dance theater practice. They're, they're quote unquote getting credit for their three hours of practice, but within that they're engaging socially, they're enjoying it, they're like even developing sort of organic competition between each other who can like, and these are kids that, you know, you would normal, you know, general people would look at and be like, these kids are not PE kids. Mm -hmm. And they're loving the physical activity experience that's facilitated through the online curriculum that this school district developed, that we helped them develop. So I think the reason I'm so optimistic is because I've seen it work in certain areas for certain students um, within districts that were supportive. I mean, there's a lot of, of things that need to be in place, but I, I wouldn't say that a whole online a whole curriculum should be online. I think that's inappropriate and, and, and wouldn't serve the needs of students. It would take the pendulum the other way. Yeah. Um, but just like the school you talk to and some schools I'm familiar with have a hiking, you know, walking for wellness, uh, a competitive team sports, a strength and conditioning for elite athletics, there should be an online personal wellness course or, mm -hmm. or who says that a personal wellness course has to, I mean, I guess the con, the teacher contract says it, but who says that a course for a student that wants to stay engaged couldn't maintain contact with their physical education teacher through some level of structural learning over the summer through like a health coaching or, or sort of interaction. Yeah. Like we have such a narrow view of physical education within a 180 day industrialized neoliberal school system that I think I just use online PE because I'm just oppositional to that. And I, I just want to fight against that ridiculous, like restrictive conception of what physical education could be. Yeah. Well, I, even if you think about things like what Tim Fletcher has done and Stephanie Benny around meaningful physical education, they think about the social aspect. They think about finding joy and being student centered and what they, what they like doing and some of these students love dancing. Like my, my wife growing up, she didn't have to go PE because she danced all the time and she did ballet and modern dance and 
she was doing a lot of physical activity and exercise. If that was allowed with an online component that taught the cognitive and the affective parts of different things that she is doing and growing up with, I would be a lot more okay with that. It's the same thing as like in high school, like I did, I think maybe three weeks of high school PE. And then I started on the wrestling team and I did four years of wrestling. And you know what? I got PE credit for wrestling all four years. I learned PE, like I learned wrestling. Like I didn't learn how to throw or kick or I learned bad nutrition habits through weight cutting and all those other things. And like, if there was at least for the mandatory years, like ninth and 10th grade, when you have to take PE, like having an online component for athletics who are already like, let's be honest, there are tons of states that allow you to substitute an athletic team sport or individual sport for PE and they don't even blink, right? There are um, a school that I did research with in, in my dissertation, they allowed athletes to opt out of PE if they passed X amount of fitness tests. Like in the PACER thing, if they were like at healthy fitness zone for these if they weren't they had to take this extra like supplemental thing and but it's like they're already letting people substitute like let's just claw back some of that education some of it you know yeah and i don't even see that as yeah i see that as a real positive based on what you said and i even like extend it to like bands and dance theater and 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 you know rotc even like I, you think back to your like like formative teenage years, like like a lot of us are just fit. Like I would be able to pass a fitness test in high school and think nothing of it. I don't understand the value of it. I don't understand when to be active. I don't understand why being with friends is enriching. I don't understand like how future life will interrupt that and does interrupt that and how to overcome barriers, you know, Currently, as you know, quote unquote, a teenager or as a faculty professor, I don't understand. I can't even look ahead to this. And this is a lot of the stuff that I think an online piece could help students understand. What is the value of carrying around a tuba for three hours at your practice every day? And then think about how validating that would be to a lot of these kids in band that don't see themselves as quote unquote athletic or physically active or even capable of, you know, being whatever healthy is in that context. It's like, I would love for somebody to do a SOFIT observation of a band practice and, and just to demonstrate how much physical activity occurs and let kids know that they're doing a great job out there and understand why that's valuable and why they need to make decisions now when they're in band to help them be able to be physically active when they don't have 150 colleagues to march around with when they graduate school or when they graduate college, like let the football players who get waivers through the online curriculum know that football is fine for now. Maybe it might not be with the concussion issue, but whatever. What are you going to do when you don't have 75 friends with full equipment and coaches screaming at you? How are you going to be active? What decisions are you going to make? I think that's how we can use online to overcome the wager waiver issue help them understand the relevance of what they're doing now, help them make decisions for when they don't have that support system down the road. Yeah. 
Um, no, I mean those those connections are huge. I I know in my in my high school, I just remembered the football team just had this unlimited supply of peanut butter jelly sandwiches, like that you would just go in there and you just have to force feed yourself and eat. Maybe I was pissed off because I was always cutting weight and these football guys are just like trying to eat as much as possible. But they were like mass, mass, mass. You have to get big if you're an offensive lineman. You have to be gigantic. So we're lifting a lot of weights and you're eating, 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 eating. And then you do that for four years and you become on the BMI, skewed, blah, 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 okay. But on the BMI, you're obese. And you're a really good athlete, but you don't make it to college and you don't play football and you enter the workforce or college as an obese individual who only knows bench, squat, like pushing activities and they're, they're agile and quick, but they have zero cardio. And like they haven't been, there was nothing there teaching them the other content. And that's, and that's the same thing if like, if you're a swimmer, right? Swimmer, like you, you have a lifetime activity there. That's that's great, but you don't learn the other other stuff about you know how to how to manage that going forward. But uh, so I'm and I'm just gonna say just real quick, speaking to the swimmers, it's like you know I transitioned from team sports to individual sports at a pretty high level in my twenties, and. I hated it by the end because I never made the connections of like why it's important to ride bikes with others or like why it's important to go on uh, 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 team runs. Why why it would be beneficial to get on the trail? Like, you know, we even with students who are in cross country or tennis or that are engaged in these high level or, or just lifetime activities still need to understand, you know, how to prolong that or how to make that actually meaningful and enriching across the lifespan. Cause once the competitive spirit goes and once I stopped competing in triathlon, like at a high level, I actually liked riding my bike and I, I, I didn't want to invite others because like, their pace was either too fast or too slow for me. And I'm like, well, what's that doing for me? That's doing, you know, you get fourth place at a local age group. It's not going to like do anything for you. It's like slow down a little bit and understand what actually provides meaning and do that. Cause I, I, it is not common sense. I have a PhD in kinesiology. It took a long time of reflection to really make, to understand the value for myself. And so I see us as being able to facilitate with others through their reflective process, through the democratic process, really through the meaningful physical education framework, which I think aligns really well with online if it's done yeah. well. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think that those are the, the non-traditional sports or the uh, unstructured uh, sports that are there's a word, there's a term that Justin O'Connor uses, but I just it's just like escaping me but you know they uh laura alfrey and justin just did that uh, paper about restructuring or reorganizing the thinking of these types of um you know where where do we recategorize these and then a lot of those what you can do by yourself like or you can do with limited 
organization that you don't you're not signing up and losing money if you don't go to a class or you're not letting down teammates if you miss a team run or a group bicycle ride and like for me ever since i i messed up my back over years and years of abuse um you know like i i now like i have a road bike i don't go ride it very much because like i'm like well it's just going by myself but if i go on a ride with people like i enjoy it you know i i don't i don't love the gym as much as you do i love grappling sports i love doing that kind of stuff and i got really good workouts but you know like going to the gym not as exciting i try to get motivated for things like a stationary bike made by a tech company you know i'm not going to give them a plug okay. here but like i think you know, companies like Peloton have something there with the motivation, with the continuing the streak. It's like, it's the gamification of these things. Like I have, uh, I'm going to a conference in Chile for ICEP this summer and I'm doing Duolingo and it has a streak. If every day you do it, you continue your streak and it reminds me and pros me every day. So I'm now 41 days in a row and I can't stop the streak now because I'm like committed. And that's how I feel when I get into a routine with Peloton, right? Because it reminds me and it says like, hey, great job. Last week you did this many workouts. Can you beat that? And here's something else. Like if you're getting tired of this, here are some other things that you could do. And those are things that can't be individualized very well by a PE teacher who's teaching 80 students. You can't get those individual recommendations because it's just too, too busy. So I don't know. I, I, I feel you a lot on that transition from team sports to individual sports to lifetime activities. Like those are things that all of our students will come across at one point, whether it's because they get a different job, because they have kids, because they move to a different environment. They move from Florida to Minnesota and all of a sudden like cross-country skiing would be really good for them during certain times and but they haven't learned it. How do they get in? So I think there's a lot there that we could do a lot better with. So um, what do you what do you feel like, you know, we've talked about the pros here, but what are what are some barriers to adopting this? I know one of the things you talked about in the paper was that you know, online PE during the pandemic gave gave some teachers a bad taste of like what online PE is, and now it's it's different. So, what are what are some of the barriers to adopting this? Yeah, I think there's a lot. You know, you know when I'm, when I speak about it, sort of this ideal sense, of, uh, you know, after years of thought and what it could be, I think what there's a long list. I would say misconceptions on what it even is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say attitudes towards it. Say learning culture, teacher preparation, student readiness, safe, accessible spaces away from the school to be active independently or you know socially in your own environment. Um, probably school policy in relation to engagement for digital learning. I said teachers unions. So uh, I'll leave that list. Uh, leave that list there, and you know. Which ones should we talk about? There's well, let me let me ask you about bunch. the misconception. Do you so you have been on this podcast to talk about your recent book on flipped learning? 
So do you consider flipped learning as a part of online PE? Yeah, an online PE is sort of like, uh, I don't say antiquated, but sort of like a, uh, a previous way of sort of, it's the previous umbrella term. I'd say digital learning is really what we're talking about. And digital learning um, occurs across the spectrum. So there's fully online digital learning, which is like a virtual school or an online PE class. There's hybrid or flipped learning, which is sort of a combination between the online and the face-to-face. -face. And there is online learning or digital learning that occurs within the context of a face-to-face -face class. That might be, you know, a GIF or, you know, an online YouTube video, or you might uh, put up a yoga routine or something like that, like a, a core fitness or a warm-up. That's still online learning. Well, we're, you and I are talking about now is, is the more asynchronous piece or the disconnected piece. So within a flipped learning class, you're engaging in the online learning before class away from the school. In an online physical education elective, you're doing the same thing. You're just not in, engaging in the face-to-face. -face. So um, I would say online learning is a component of flipped learning and could be employed as well um, to provide expanded opportunities for students to be physically active or at least to learn or engage with content. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of, one of the biggest barriers is for us to get to where shape America suggests that secondary schools get to like, it costs a lot of money and a lot of the space, especially in, in a state like you live, you need an inside gym. You need a gym for part of the year so you can be inside. And and Hans von der Bars wrote about this and he presented. Not necessarily. We do outside all year long here. But I get what you're saying. You do need yeah. like during the school day for sure. You're not and not every kid's gonna have snowshoes or snow pants or whatever. But yeah, well, and that that also happens in Mesa, Arizona, when it gets too hot during the day to be able to safely be outside. Um, but you know, one of the things is space and especially physical space at the secondary level. Um, you also have the gym. If you have the gym, it's not necessarily available after school for hybrid teaching for PE. It's basketball, volleyball. It's all these team practices that take over that valuable space. So um, I remember Hans Vandemar has presented this at, I think it was ICEP 2019. And he, he has a paper about, about this that showed how much money it would cost to get one school district in Arizona up to the Shape America recommendations. And it was like building an extra two gyms uh, so teaching can take part in every school and hiring X amount of faculty for this and this amount of money. And it was like millions and millions of dollars. So do you feel like online PE can fix part of that and get, I mean, maybe not the in-person hours, but if you look at, teaching PE and just in, if you include online PE into that, do you feel like online PE can kind of fix part of that uh, problem with space? Yeah, I think so, because it expands learning beyond the gym and the school. That, I mean, the two barriers it overcomes is the time barrier, you know, of the school day or the class period and the space barrier of the fields and the gym. So again, it, when we speak about this, you know, it's, it's with, the assumption that the online PE is of a certain quality and is is appropriately sort of encouraging and prompting students to engage in safe physical activity within their community. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, I'm a huge component of the student centered approach. And so, you know, through a reflective process, you're prompting students into trying different activities in different places, under different contexts, at different times to help them identify personally relevant, enriching physical activity experiences. Um, so, uh, that might be in the woods on the trail. That might be on the mountain with some skis. That might be in the lake. That might be on the road. That might be in the gym. That might be on the tennis court. That might be in your living room. Yeah. Like my during my our PhD training, my wife spent probably 25 hours on her stationary bike every just to read. She's like, I just don't want to sit and read. I'm gonna get on my bike and read, and that was fine. That was good for her. She was getting her you know, feeling like she was energized and active. And that was fine at that time. Um, don't recommend it for most people or even myself, but, you know, but understanding why that was valuable. She recognizes the need for, you know, physical strength as she goes, goes through the lifespan. She understands the value of cardiovascular fitness. She understands the dangers of sedentary behavior. And those are all things that we can provide through the online physical education instruction and then let kids experience it. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's so much, so much room for, for growth here. And as you, as you said, there's not a ton of research on, on this, they're a growing body of research for sure, but we still don't really understand what the best case is. And it's so case by case specific because different teachers unions allow different things and different States have different rules and, Different teachers have different capabilities of being able to run an, uh, an asynchronous course. And, you know, you have outsourcing intersection here of like, do you just pay some for-profit company to come in and build you a shell? And like, it's such an easy way to do it for a large amount of, of students, but it's just so short-sighted. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot there's a lot to to deal with when it gets to the equity piece too i think we mentioned before is like you know if you're going to require students to be physically active on their own there has to be some level of effort to open up the school before and after for them to participate particularly if you know the, depending on the organization of the community if it's difficult to get around if the public transit isn't good if the green spaces isn't there you know mm -hmm. um we do have to sort of equitable opportunities in mind for students enrolled in these classes as well. Um, and I think, you know, speaking to doctoral students and doctoral advisors is just, there's so much here that can be creative. There's, there's a lifetime of research across an incredible amount of topic areas from socialization to physical activity outcomes and everything in between. Yeah. Um, even to the point where, you know, couching online physical education within online education, I think is wrong. It's not online. Online education research, effective online education is completely cognitive driven. Yeah. We're a psychomotor subject. So strategies of effective, quote unquote, effective online learning don't automatically transition to psychomotor development. So like even the way that we're we're you know contextualizing online physical education within this online learning uh, sort of literature, I think is wrong. Not so, online learning. Are you saying that? I mean, you 
can you teach physical skills through online learning? There's not a whole lot of research on it. I would probably the code coaching literature is more explicit in terms of the evidence related to skill development, but I think it'd be possible. Mm -hmm. I think the reason why it lends itself more to the secondary physical education is the assumption that students have some level of skill already at that time. And so you can push them out into activities without necessarily starting from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh, and teaching, you know, foundational skills. You know, I think that's another layer to this too, is students that are enrolled in online PE should have foundational skills, yeah. which emphasize the importance of elementary, middle school PE <laughs> leading up to yeah. this. And I, and I think I did use this word at the very beginning, but I did not emphasize it. You are advocating for secondary. We're talking about secondary. We ha- we're not talking about primary PE and switching a primary physical education to have online PE component. But like, I think that's, that's great to clarify at the end as people have listened this far. <laughs> but I think one of, the, one of the great quotes you have in here is at the end is we need a solution that gives us space to teach well and students space to learn well. And I feel like that just kind of like wraps it up so well of like, you know, we need space. We need, we can't teach 80 students. And also, like, students have to have the space to learn well. And maybe that's online. Maybe that's, you know, outside of the direct pressure of learning on the spot right now, right here, and performing in front of peers when they're not ready. And maybe they would prefer to get a little heads up and say, like, okay, we're going over the badminton serve today. Uh, here's the video on how to do it. And it's posted a week ahead of time so you can look at, look at it. Uh, at home and practice if you if you have the capability to yeah maybe it is i think that's that's the attitude that we have to have maybe it is a solution um i I think that too many people it's really fun you know to hear people rage against custodial pe teachers that sort of quote roll the ball out and they hate you know they 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 promote innovative pe but it, it stops it online and digital and it's like you can't you can't do that guys like it doesn't stop there. It's it, it, like if we care about providing students with quality physical education, we have to be open to all possibilities. And we just published a, uh, an article on our flipped learning pilot. It was five lessons, but across five lessons, implementing flipped learning at a very basic level, average addition of seven and a half minutes of physical activity engagement across each lesson. That, you know, that's preliminary data, but that's a lot of extra time if it stands that way. Even if it's five extra minutes, mm-hmm. you add that up over a school year, that's an extra four or five hours. You can do yeah. a little bit more in that time. Yeah. So we just need to have open minds about this, you know, and study it and study it well and be critical about it and talk about it and let your students study it if they're interested, if they're not, you know, whatever, but like it's coming down the road and, and, and at the very least we want our teachers to, to be able to have a conversation about it when they get jobs, to be able to have a baseline level of skill, but that's our job. That's why we need more researchers. Like I can't do this by myself. I'm the only one that does studies this like full time at a research university at this stage. 
like there's too much to to talk about that has too large of implications for us not to be mobilized at some level as a field. You know, yeah. it's not the most important thing. It's one of many important issues, obviously. And we have a lot of work across, you know, many areas of our field, but this is pretty prominent and it's happening at a time where we we are becoming more and more marginalized. So I, I just think that based on what we know right now, it could be a good thing in secondary schools and we need to be equipping our undergrads to do that. But before we even start that, we need to be able to know what quality is. So like, yeah. it just, there's so many points that, that converge on this issue. Um, it's overwhelming as somebody whose career is sort of dedicated to thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Well, so you've been on the podcast before. We talked, uh, I think, all the way back in like episode eighty-three about this and and the start. Uh, then you and I and Kevin Richards talked about Chat GPT, and it was somewhere around two sixty-five. There were a lot of episodes in in between there, but somewhere around there. Um, so you can hear about that. So my last question to you, as we kind of wrap this up, I am curious: Did you pay twenty dollars a month for Chat GPT four now that it's released? I have not, but how quickly did that happen? Then we say something Super about, fast. you know, they're going to do a premium. Super like, fast. I mean, that's a whole, that, that's a whole nother layer of this online PE thing. And you start talking about chat bots and stuff. And it's like, I have not tried it. Have you? I haven't, but I'm, I think I might pay for it because I, so did you, do you listen to hard fork podcast? All right, so Hard Fork is my like nerd out tech kind of okay. kind of still interested in this stuff. Uh, it's by Kevin Roos from New York Times, and it's a New York Times podcast, and then somebody else who's uh, who works with him. Um, they do a podcast about tech, so they just started probably like in like October or something, and so they did a Chat GPT four episode. And they talked about it, and there's I think it's like last week that it came out, so we're talking mid March, um, and they're like the they just went over the basically the release of ChatGPT four, and they're like, well, uh, it passed the bar exam. It did not at ninetieth percentile, like it did better than ninety percent of lawyers who take that test. Whereas the last ChatGPT, the one that we talked about, like the one from November, was in the tenth percentile. It went from 10th to 90th. And so it talked about how all like it passes all these AP tests at fives and it's wild. And I, my buddy was over this weekend and he, cause I, he's into tech and I asked him if he's paid for, it. he's like, Oh, a hundred percent. I use it all the time. And I'm like, I don't know. I, like I could waste $20 on a lot of more terrible things than to just have access to basically a lawyer who who's better than 90% of the lawyers on standardized tests. Like it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. And I, 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 that speaks to, so I am like, like a lot more skeptical of AI because we just don't know where it's going. But like, I think that sort of brings up a point of like why people need to be thinking about this because there will be a day when a machine teaches better than a teacher, quote unquote teacher, or at least gets better outcomes. Mm -hmm. What, you know, and outcomes are data and data drive policy and advocacy. And so once mid-level, you know, 
principals, mid-level management get a hold of that data that, you know, their $120,000 a year PE teacher isn't doing anything, but the chat AI does, that becomes dangerous. Yeah, very. It becomes dangerous when you know, AI can personalize your fitness experience. And it, it, it's above my pay grade, but there's, there's a humanism and philosophy and ethics of this. And I think that's where the line stops with like online PE is like, I don't see, we cannot promote online PE as something where we draw kids into being physically active in the computer. We need to be pushing them out. Mm-hmm. Once it becomes like get involved in this computer, get involved in this dopamine transmit, like gamified sort of nudge, nudge oriented mindless physical activity. We need to be able to say why that's not valuable. We need more Scott, Dr. Kretschmar in our lives and, and draw the line so that we can maintain our souls as humans. Like, I don't want my kid taking online PE. I'll be honest. I don't want my kid on a computer 90% of the day, but if 10 minutes helps them, you know, find value in going on a hike with two friends and understanding, you know, why that's as a human, why that's valuable, why that's important, why their mood is better after, why they're thinking more clearly, why they can think about that. Then I think it's a good thing. But this AI stuff with like, completely we talked about a little bit like completely tailored like then we're getting into some some ethical stuff that i'm not sure i don't think we're equipped right now to argue against that Mm -hmm. why is that worse than what's currently available because in many ways it'd be better because the outcomes are better the assess quote unquote assessments are better that's the language of education and we're in a bad place when that starts coming if we can't argue why face-to-face physical education is better yeah and that's why these conversations are important and we can understand the tech drives our lives because i have a meeting with it in three minutes because my video editing software uh crashed because i updated my uh my operating system on mac and so now i have to go sit through sit through it to have them punch in their permissions so as long as you just give the AI, a password protected screen that they can't access without you having a physical person go in and type in that thing. I think our jobs are safe. Yeah, thankfully for now, (laughs) for now. So thanks Chad. Uh, For everybody, I will put in the uh, link to the editorial that Chad wrote into the show notes and uh, stay tuned to the space. There'll be uh, there'll be a lot more happening here. And as that happens, we'll, uh, We'll bring our resident online PE expert, Chad Killian, back. Does that mean I'm a friend of the show officially? Yes. Yeah, so we, so our, our, not we're not a group, but a couple of our colleagues are presenting um, next week at Shape America in a roundtable discussion. Um, if you're going to ICEP in Chile, um, we have a presentation there as well about these types of things around AI and what. Uh, what that has an effect on uh, Pete and in our research. So thanks for listening, everybody. And thanks, Chad, for coming back. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully it stimulates some conversations. All right. Bye.